One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Welcome to The Real Story from the BBC World Service with me, Chris Morris. This is an extraordinary moment in British political history. In deciding to leave the European Union after more than 40 years... The UK is trying to reboot its political and economic structures in a way that perhaps no modern industrialised country has ever done before. But confusion and discord reigns. And now Parliament will have a decisive say. The atmosphere is tense, febrile. Here's Prime Minister Theresa May opening this week's debate on Tuesday in the House of Commons. At the start of five days... At the start of five days of debate that will set the course our country takes for decades to come. It is worth taking a moment to reflect on how we got here. When the... Ignoring the heckles and the jeers, the Prime Minister argued that her deal is the only deal that can actually work. The hard truth is also that we will not settle this issue and bring our country together if in delivering Brexit we do not protect the trade and security cooperation on which so many jobs and lives depend, completely ignoring the views of the 48%. We can can shut our eyes to these hard truths and carry on debating between these extremes for months to come, or we can accept that the only solution that will endure is one that addresses the concerns of those who voted leave while reassuring those who voted remain. That this, I will take, I will take a number of interventions in a minute. When well, I've just finished this, that this argument has gone on long enough. It is corrosive to our politics, and life depends on compromise. But she faces fierce opposition and appears to be heading for a parliamentary defeat. The leader of the opposition Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, believes Mrs May's deal will make Britain poorer. Labour will vote against this deal. A bad deal for Britain, a bad deal for our economy and, I believe, a bad deal for our democracy. Our country deserves better than this. And it's not just opposition parties. Some of the Prime Minister's fiercest critics can be found within her own Conservative Party. One of the reasons why the UK had a referendum on Brexit in the first place was to try to resolve decades of Conservative feuds about the European Union. And this man, Boris Johnson, was at the forefront of the campaign for the UK to leave the EU. Beneath the camouflage, we find the same old EU institutions as the customs union and the single market, and all of it adjudicated, by the way, by the European Court of Justice. If we vote, if we vote for this deal, we will not be taking back control, but losing. I'm very grateful to the right honourable gentleman for giving way. He appears to be one of those who prefers the grievance to the solution. My right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, has come up with a solution. What's his big idea? I was coming to that! And that interruption, by the way, came from yet another Conservative MP in a party at war with itself over Brexit. Well, our political correspondent, Rob Watson, is one of those charged with trying to make sense of it all. You know, I've been talking about this a lot, Chris, and I don't think it is an exaggeration to say that this is the most profound political crisis in Britain since the end of the Second World War. I say that because looking back, when you have big moments like, I don't know, after the Second World War, the decision to nationalise vast parts of 
of the economy, to have a welfare state, most people agreed with that. Decolonization, well, most people agreed with that as well. The Suez Crisis, of course, comes to mind in 1956. And then I guess, of course, there's joining the European Union, the vote to join it in 1972. But this is bigger than that in the sense that our involvement in the European Union is now much bigger, more profound. Our economies are more closely connected. It's bigger because the parties, the politicians, are just utterly divided about what the result of the referendum in 2016 should mean. And I think what really makes it feel like an intense national crisis is that it's not just the people here in Westminster where I'm speaking to you from, but it's also the country which is profoundly divided. It has a cultural divide in a way that has not really been seen in Britain since the war. And the extraordinary thing is that more than two years after that vote to leave the EU... No one, literally no one, can tell us where we're likely to end up in six months' time. No, they can't. And if you think about it, the sort of the fundamental problem at the heart of all of this is quite basic. It's that the people voted for something that the majority of politicians don't want and didn't think was a good idea. And added to that mix, you have the governing Conservative Party that has long, long been split over Europe. Added to that, the main opposition party, the Labour Party, is also profoundly divided over Europe. And what constitutes a real profound crisis is, number one, the issue is really enormous. The second powerful ingredient for a crisis is that the politicians simply cannot agree on what to do about it. So next Tuesday, a vote in the House of Commons to accept or reject the withdrawal agreement in its current form. The number's not looking great for the Prime Minister. Uh, No, they are not. It seems as though she is headed for a defeat of truly historic proportions because she needs to get 320 votes for this deal to pass. There are 315 Conservative MPs. Now, it's thought perhaps as many as 100 may vote against her and, of course, all of the opposition parties are lined up against her, so this could be a pretty crushing blow. And uncharted political waters then, but set out for us what could happen. So it depends on the margin of the defeat. Let's say it was a relatively narrow defeat. She only loses by 20, 30 votes. She might go to the EU summit that's scheduled a couple of days later and say, look, I've got a problem. Can we do some tweaks? And then come back and put it to another vote. I think if it's much bigger than that, she and her deal are in deep trouble. I think her deal for sure would be gone. And if the Prime Minister is gone, I think what we could be looking at is Britain leaving without any kind of deal at all. We could be looking at a new deal, that is some different way of leaving the European Union. We could be looking at a second vote, a second referendum, or we could be looking at a general election. And then there's my favourite, which is who knows. And I insert that honestly, because if you talk to politicians at Westminster, they themselves aren't sure how this crisis ends. And and that, of course, is why, as well as being a profound crisis, I say it's a truly dramatic one. Genuinely, nobody really is sure how this ends. Rob Watson there reminding us that no one has an infallible crystal ball on Brexit. And with that in mind, let's meet our panel. Mary Caldor is Professor of Global Governance at the London School of Economics. She's also on the steering committee of the campaigning group Another Europe is Possible. Sam Lowe is a senior research fellow at the Centre for European Reform, a think tank which argues for pragmatic change in the EU. And Shankar Singham is the director of the International Trade and Competition Unit at the Institute of Economic Affairs, a free market think tank which, I think it's fair to say, is less enamoured with most of the EU. 
Now, an initial question for all three of you, and perhaps a brief answer if we if we could. We don't live in an ideal world, but from where we are now in this sea of confusion, what would you plump for? The Prime Minister's deal, leaving the EU with no deal at all, or no Brexit? Let's call the whole thing off. Sam? Not leaving the EU is obviously something that, from an economic perspective, would be vastly beneficial, and that's, and that's the way you should go. But assuming that's not possible, and we are going to leave... The withdrawal agreement that's on the table is what a withdrawal agreement would look like. It's actually what we've known it would look like more or less for the last year. It's about how we leave. It has an insurance policy for Northern Ireland to ensure that no matter what happens with the future relationship, we don't end up with physical infrastructure and associated checks. And it deals with things like settling the tab, paying the money. This is substantially what the withdrawal agreement's not going to look like and what it would look like no matter who had negotiated it. Mary, you still think another referendum is a possibility? I do, and I think that no Brexit is the best solution. And I think we should try to remain in the European Union and we should try to reform it. Maybe you're right that it's the best deal that can be negotiated, but it's going to be a big hit for Britain economically and politically. We're already losing our influence. And I think the people who voted for this didn't vote to get poorer. They didn't vote to get less control, which we'll have. (laughs) And I think it's the responsibility of politicians to say this. We do live in a situation of parliamentary sovereignty and referendums are meant to be advisory, not binding. Probably we have to have a second referendum to shift it because that's the way we did it. But I think politicians really have to take responsibility and say, we can't go down a route that is going to be bad for Britain, both economically and politically. Shankar Singham, you you think this deal is is worse than leaving with no deal at all? I I think this deal is, if you look at the withdrawal agreement, I mean, 90% of this is probably fine. But the problem with the withdrawal agreement is the things that aren't fine, I think, are fatal. So you've got essentially four major issues that I would want to see out of the withdrawal agreement in order for it to be the sort of thing that could command a majority of the House of Commons, but also critically be a good agreement for the UK. The backstop, unfortunately, what the backstop does by putting Northern Ireland in the customs union and in the 68 areas of regulatory uh, alignment to the EU, essentially in the single market for goods and agri-food, and GB in a customs union with, with the EU, means that every time there's a negotiating point, the negotiating leverage is going to be with the EU. It's a bad deal because it puts all the leverage, all the negotiating leverage with the EU. And given the fact that the EU's opening bid to us was a comprehensive trade agreement with the UK, with regulatory corporations, with customs facilitations and with Irish border facilitations, we ought to be able to have an agreement with the EU over time that has lots of regulatory cooperations, lots of customs facilitations, lots of Irish border facilitations, but their opening bid we will not be able to get beyond. They will have no incentive to meet us. I just want to remind people, because I know we're going to talk about this a lot, what the backstop is. Basically, the agreement by both sides to keep the land border between Northern Ireland and Ireland as open as it is now with no checks and controls. And it is set out in in legal text that if at the end of a post-Brexit transition period there is no permanent new trade agreement in place, then the whole of the UK, as you said, enters into what is in effect a temporary customs union. Your fear, I guess, and the fear of many Brexiteers, is that temporary arrangement de facto becomes permanent 
and that is the end of an independent yeah. trade policy around the world. Yeah, you have to remember, this is a legal, legally binding text. This is an international treaty with no exit clause. NATO has an exit clause. The WTO has an exit clause. All our trade agreements have exit clauses. So you've got to take the language of this very seriously. But don't you I want don't... to keep the Irish border open? Of course, of course. And I think you can do it. I think you can do it in other ways. I think you can do it through... Um, and we've suggested many technical solutions that are completely UCC compliant. There, there are um, no borders anywhere in the world at the moment that have well, there's, there's solutions. No, and and, the, and the EU has allowed for the fact, because what we're missing out here is that it is an insurance policy. So the objective is still to deal with the issue of the Irish land border via the future relationship. And if, as Shankar has argued many times, all of these technological solutions exist... It allows te- technical solutions, sorry, technical and technological. I think you've suggested both at different times. Well, lines. technical and is the major it would, it would allow for this to be dealt with via the future relationship, and they would consider that. But we should also remember that this has always been really a binary choice. You can have a deep, comprehensive relationship with the EU that leaves us very much aligned and constrains us with regard to our relationships with countries elsewhere. And if you do that, you can have a whole UK solution where Northern Ireland is treated no differently from Great Britain. Or you can have a relationship whereby the UK has extricated itself from the EU's regulatory regime. It has more freedom to sign agreements elsewhere, but that can only apply to Great Britain. Northern Ireland would need to be treated differently. And we've known that for about a year. But but an international treaty from which there is no exit clause. I can't think of another treaty that the United Kingdom has signed that that has that within it. It's it's an extraordinary loss of sovereignty, sovereignty something which, which, which was part of the referendum campaign. It's only a treaty on withdrawal, and that's a point I would really like people to understand because we heard from your political editor that this is going to be the end of the discussion. It's the beginning mm, of the discussion. That's, that it's just an agreement about withdrawal. So if it had an exit clause, actually we've just been given an exit clause. The ECJ has ruled that we can withdraw our decision to trigger Article 50. That's the only way. But I'm not sure he said it was the end of the discussion. Yeah. I, think, I think, and the point is, obviously, the, the political declaration that goes with it on the future relationship only 26 pages long, non-binding, doesn't actually rule out any option at no. all. So your option, Shankar, no. could be in, within well, it. Your except, option could except, be within the it. Except, it's a, except, it's a years world of possibilities. And years and years, except, we're going to go on arguing about this. Oh, actually, yeah, Brexit yes, is we a, are. <laughs> a lifetime pursuit. <laughs> but but except the problem is that in the withdrawal agreement, it refers to, in, in the text of the withdrawal agreement, a single customs territory. And that's one of the issues associated with the backstop that's a problem because that replies, that specific provision applies to the future relationship between the UK and the EU. And what and, you don't like about that is it prevents us well, it will having be used. an independent trade policy, yeah, doing our own used. trade deals on goods in particular around the world with the United States, with countries in well, East Asia and so on. Yeah, so the problem, the problem for trade policy is that other countries are reading this and other countries are looking at this. And when I was in the USTR recently, constantly coming up this language about a single customs territory and, in the, and then you read that with the political declaration that talks about building off the um, customs union arrangements for the future relationship between the UK and the EU. And they're reading that to say, well, we don't really know if we should put down 
a lot of political capital to do a trade deal with you and go to our domestic lobbies and our domestic industries and ask them to accept concessions. If we don't really know where you're going to be, we don't know whether you're going to be in a customs union for an indefinite period of time. We don't know whether you're going to be locked into, a, as Sam said, a high degree of alignment with European regulation. Because of course, you can argue the same applies to the European Union in terms of their future trade policy. For as long as, if, if the backstop came into play, for as long as it was there, other countries around the world are going to ask the EU, are we negotiating with a, a customs union of 27 or 28 with this large economy just off the northern, except, except northern we, shores we would still have, of your customs we, territory? We would still, within the backstop scenario, the UK would still be in charge of its own trade policy. It would just have constraints over what it could offer in the realm of tariffs. And, and, that, that, and that's the problem. The problem is that the, the, you're, what you're able to offer, uh, you know, Turkey, for example, has a, a trade policy. I mean, you can argue academically a lot of countries have trade policies, EFTA countries have trade policies. But in order to have a meaningful trade policy where the UK is able to pursue meaningful trade agreements that are relevant to its economy, we have to have control of our tariff schedules and we have to have regulatory autonomy, particularly over those this, things that other countries actually This is a second order want. issue. Okay, so actually, if you're approaching this from an economic perspective, you say, what relationship is the most important? And the answer is the EU. And actually, when you look at all of the different modelling on this, you can see that there's no amount of free trade agreements with the rest of the world that can compensate for the losses of Brexit. And actually, it's in the UK's economic interest to remain in this high alignment model with the EU. However, I would make this point again, it's still in the UK's gift in future, even if this withdrawal agreement comes into place, to exit from the UK-wide customs union element so long as Northern Ireland remains in it. And as to Shanker's point that other countries don't... Th- thereby splitting up the country. Yes, and they'd have to make that decision. But going to Shanker's point that other countries are unsure about what we want, they don't want to start negotiations. I mean, Britain's unsure about what it wants still. We haven't actually decided on what the future relationship looks like. So until we do that, those country- countries aren't going to be able to negotiate with us regardless and regardless of the backstop. M- Mary, I can see in your face that you regard all of this Brexit as a whole as, a, as an unnecessary gamble. But it, But is it not true that with change comes opportunity. We are in an economy which is changing rapidly already, artificial intelligence, all sorts of things. Maybe, looking on the bright side, the UK can put itself into a position which gives it an advantage over others who stay in old systems. That is complete rubbish. We live in a totally interconnected world, and that's very different from what it was in 1974 when we went in. Our economy is so integrated in the rest of Europe and the rest of the world. And if we want to be able to influence the conditions under which we operate, the only way to do it is through being in a a larger group. You know, I think what's frightening about remaining aligned without any role in the rules is that the kinds of things that that people who voted for Brexit were concerned about, the way in which their jobs went away without any redress, will be worse because we won't have any way of influencing the rules. If we stay in Europe, we could try to make sure that we regulate and tax multinational corporations so that there's a benefit to ordinary people. We can make sure we try to control financial speculation and leave aside very specific things like the space programme. I work on security issues, our role in the security policy and what that means for our defence industry, which is one of our thriving bits of manufacturing. I just want to bring Sam in there. No influence or no say in making the rules, the vassal state argument. It's a, it's a powerful emotional argument, isn't it? 
And my point would be that actually what we're talking about now is we're going to be as the UK rule takers no matter what. We are in the EU's regulatory geography. It's one of the regulatory superpowers of the world and its influence spreads far beyond its borders. We are going to, in most, in all likelihood, continue to follow these rules. What we're actually talking about now is whether we get the benefits of following those rules. And the way you get the benefits is, is you lock in a deep relationship. And I'm sure Shankar could argue, OK, maybe the UK could be innovative in some areas, but then it could also pivot towards the US and maybe choose to follow some of the their approaches in different ways. And that's that's true. We could We could choose to do that. But going back to the economics of it again... There's no evidence to suggest that that's in the UK's interest. And Shankar, I, mean, I think there is an argument saying that we have taken a gamble in voting to leave the European Union. You seem to be arguing, let's double down, let's roll the dice again and split away even further from the European Union. No, I'm just saying, I'm saying that if you've made the decision to leave the EU, the only way to do that successfully is to ensure that you maximise all the opportunities that you have and you minimise the disruptions. And that's why we've argued consistently for a free trade agreement. Let's just pull it right back to Parliament this deal is not going to get through next week, is it? And I want to know from both of you, why do you think when we had a very imperfect decision, only 2%, that nobody can ever change it? Really, this is not democracy. Democracy, you should be able to change your mind. If you do something really stupid, you should be able to say, I'm terribly sorry, let's rectify it. We are going to come back to that in the second half. I just want one brief answer from all of you before we wrap this half up. Parliament looks almost certain as we speak to vote this deal down. Where do we go from there? It does briefly each of you. It does look like it will vote the deal down. My, I wonder if it won't be by as large a margin as some people are talking about now. I think Conservatives sometimes talk a lot, but then end up voting together. I think where do we go from here? I think the most probable outcome remains some attempt at renegotiation and superficial changes. But I don't rule out the possibility that it could go in a different direction and could go towards referendum, it could go towards general election, it could go towards leadership challenge. I mean, as you said at the beginning of the programme, we just can't know. Mary, have you ever seen politics in this country so uncertain? I've never seen politics, but I think it's really important that people, and I'm talking about politicians and I'm talking about people who comment on radio, need to have a strategy. And, And the right strategy is to say, if it's defeated... We have to give the people a say. And by the way, it's not just a rerun of the referendum. Nobody voted for this deal when they voted for the referendum. What people need to be able to have a say whether they want this deal rather than saying in the European Union. That's what the vote should be about. Shankar, briefly on the politics. If if this is, as your commentator suggested, if this is a big loss um, and, you know, in fact, regardless of whether it's a big loss, if, if, if this deal is if it loses in the House of Commons, then I think what, a, what the government ought to do is to say to the European Commission, look, um, we were unable to get this through the House of Commons. We tried to get this through the House of Commons. Here are some changes to the withdrawal agreement. We'll put it on the table. We'll put the framework for a future trade relationship on the table. The EU does not want no deal. They are a major agricultural exporter into the UK market. They will not want no deal. And for the first time in the negotiation, we should actually put text on the table, put the alternative withdrawal agreement on the table and not blink and not concede. Just, I think they will be back to the table and we'll have a sensible negotiation. And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service, this week looking at Brexit. Each week we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I'd encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss a single edition. And there are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series. 
told by the people who were actually there. And do please let us know what you think of this podcast from the real story, or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us at therealstory@bbc.co.uk. But now let's get back to this edition of the Real Story with me, Chris Morris, looking at Brexit, and my guests, Mary Caldor, Sam Lowe, and Shankar Singham. Now, all this high political drama is going on in London. Brexit, after all, is a very British and Northern Irish affair. But it's not as if the European Union and its individual member states are not players in all this. Think of Ireland. Think of France. Think of the EU institutions in Brussels itself. None of them are sounding particularly keen to reopen negotiations or offer further concessions. Were the Brexit deal to fail to get through Parliament, but they would say that, wouldn't they? I've been speaking to the BBC's Europe editor Katia Adler about how they're viewing all this from the other side of the Channel. They've sort of got their arms folded, as they have had throughout much of this negotiation process, where they feel that we've spent a lot of this time negotiating amongst ourselves. What kind of Brexit do we want? Do we actually want Brexit? What kind of a country are we? And here they are again. They're watching and waiting. There's Astonishment, a, bemusement. It's bemusement more than anything else. Like, why trigger this whole process if you don't know what you want? Eyebrows raised because after 19 tortuous months, there is finally an exit deal. Let's say this again. This is an exit deal. This is not a final trade deal, as you know, Chris. The details of those negotiations would only start after Brexit. And the EU thinks, let's just go for this now, because actually in this exit deal, it still leaves all options on the table. And I think when you look at Parliament now and you listen to MPs and say, Theresa May's got a rubbish deal, we stay too close to the EU. Actually, if you look at the non-legally binding document on the table, it leaves every possibility there still, an arm's length relationship with the EU like Canada has or a much closer one like Norway. So the EU says, why argue about this now? Let's get you out of the EU, which is what you wanted, and then we can talk about the future relationship in detail. But one of the things that is in the legally binding withdrawal treaty, of course, is the Irish backstop. Ah, the backstop. Can any concessions be given on that? Because that's what a lot of MPs of are, are looking for and hoping of for. Of course. I think for the EU, they feel with the backstop, this is as far as they can go. Because the EU said, look, what we have to do is protect the Irish border. This is not just about economics, this is about politics. And that's why the EU is not going to back away from this guarantee. If they say, oh, well, the UK can unilaterally get out of it, which is what MPs are asking for, why would they do that for a departing member, UK, leaving an existing member state, Ireland, in the lurch. They're just not going to do that. So I think it would be cosmetic assurances that nobody wants to enter this backstop, which the EU doesn't either. It's not very favourable for them either. So potential tweaks to the non-binding political declaration, which, as you say, sets out a variety of options, really, but nothing to change the 585-page legally binding exit treaty. No, and I think this is where our standing in the EU hasn't diminished. But I think there is a frustration with this to a certain extent because it's not just us spending lots of public money thinking about Brexit and once if there's no deal and special departments. Every single EU member state and in Brussels as well, they have a whole department just dedicated to Brexit. So they just want to get on with this now. Of course the EU would say this right now, just like the Prime Minister, we have no plan B. Why I do that when you've got a deal on the table so they're going to wait for this vote but after that the changes can and only will be cosmetic from the EU side which means no deal or do you freeze it for a potential second referendum election officially amongst the member states they're not discussing those options yet at all. 
But all of this is a reminder that as a collective and as individual countries, the EU is a player in this. And we've had another reminder of that this week, if you like, that the day before the vote next week in Parliament, the European Court of Justice... With incredible speed, incredible. is going to you know it takes is, is going to, to get a ruling. They yeah. are going to issue a final ruling <clears throat> on whether Article Fifty is unilaterally revocable. Whether the United Kingdom could simply say we've made a mistake, we're taking it off the table. Absolutely, on Monday. Just before the vote. I mean, you can see Courts all the timing. never political, here. of course. Of course not. So we've seen all sorts of non-political decisions. The European Court of Justice making its ruling about whether the UK can just decide to say, forget it, we don't want Brexit after all, the day before the vote in Parliament. Well, we know there are a lot of Remainers in Parliament. And then the other non-political decision was Theresa May's decision to hold this meaningful vote next week. Why? Because... On Thursday and Friday next week, she meets EU leaders anyway, so that if she loses this vote, she can go to them anyway in a scheduled meeting and say, help me. This is our deal. You've got to give me something. It's going to be very interesting indeed to see what happens. Katia Adler there reminding us that in the EU, it's never over until it's over. But if Theresa May's withdrawal deal does get voted down and if there's nothing to replace it, then Britain will leave the EU on Friday the 29th of March next year, without a deal of any kind. So let's focus on no deal for a while. Sam Lowe, what happens then? Wow. What doesn't happen? I think we've going to have extricated ourselves from one of the most legally comprehensive systems of multi-country government on earth with nothing to replace it. So So, so do planes stop flying? Do the borders clog up? My assumption as to what happens in the immediate aftermath is that both the UK and the EU take unilateral measures to ensure that things don't freeze up entirely. So trucks can still flow, if albeit much, much slower. But we we have friction at the border and uncertainty from day one. And then, of course, the assumption lots of people make when they talk about no deal is that there will then be deals. But what I feel would happen is there'd be this chaos... I think, on both sides, but it'd be felt more acutely in the UK. And the EU's assumption is the UK will then come back to the table and say, we need to discuss a few things. And do you know what the EU will say in that moment? That's £40 in a backstop, please. Shankar Singham, this is an extraordinary position for a modern, industrialised economy, one of the world's great economies, to have got itself into. Yeah, and certainly one can ask questions about the year and a half of preparations that one should have been making for all eventualities and whether they were in fact made or not. And I think that is a big problem because a no-deal scenario, from the moment this started, you can't control what the other side does. So it is possible always in this sort of situation for a no-deal scenario to be what you get. And you should do everything in your power to prepare for it, and I don't believe that was done. So neither party wants no deal. No deal will be disruptive on day one. Now, I think the level of disruption may have been exaggerated by some of the Treasury reports and other reports. And I think we will do things unilaterally. So you think it would be survivable? It would be very disruptive for a time, but I think it would be survivable. But I think the more important point is that when the deal is voted down, people are not going to do nothing. They are going to start negotiating. And what the European Union knows 
is that if we are truly in a no-deal situation, we will have to do some unilateral things. We can't have 30% food price inflation. We are going to have to open up our agricultural import quotas to others. We are going to have to potentially uh, apply a zero tariff on some agri-food. This is very bad for the European Union agricultural producers. It's bad for our producers too. Pretty bad for our own farmers as well. But it will be very bad for them. And they are a major net agricultural exporter into the UK market. We are one of their biggest markets. They will come to the table if we put a sensible proposal, particularly if it's one based on their original offer, which we rejected. Mary Calder, when you hear senior politicians in the House of Commons saying no deal's going to be fine, we can be global Britain, we can buccaneer around the world like it's the 18th century, I mean, a 21st century version of that nonetheless, how does that make you feel? Well, I think it's completely mad and I think there can't be a no deal. I think it would be so irresponsible of Parliament. Hilary Benn has put in an amendment to the withdrawal bill to say that there can be no deal. He's and a Labour MP, a senior Labour he's MP. He's a senior Labour MP. And I think there can't be a no deal and there has to be agreement that there will be no deal. And I think the idea that somehow the EU is going to buckle in, why on earth should they? It's completely mad. It's a sort of old-fashioned... Uh, view imperial nostalgia that we were once very strong and we still are. We aren't any longer. But what I really would like to say before we get it, I, I have things to say about the nitty gritty, but I think it's absolutely extraordinary that a decision of this moment has not involved a deliberative discussion. I mean, I work on conflicts all over the world and DFID, the UK Department for International Development, goes around trying to organise dialogues, women's groups to discuss possible peace agreements. Nobody has been consulted on this. This is an argument inside the Conservative Party. Basically, it's been a negotiation not between Britain and the European Union, but a negotiation inside the Conservative Party. There's been no public discussion, something that is going to totally transform our constitution, remove many of our rights. because we've our failed, rights, We've been failed by our political leaders. We've been totally parties. failed by our political leaders. We never had a written constitution. So the EU was the nearest thing we had to a written constitution. All our rights are being taken away without any public deliberation or discussion. The thing I would say, though, and and the fear here is that no deal is the default scenario. So no, no deal is what happens if, if, the nothing, else 50, happens. if nothing else happens, yep. that you, you get no deal. Well, I'd say to Shankar's point, this idea that if it looks like no deal's on the table, suddenly the EU might become more sort of amicable to our proposals and just say, OK, we don't worry about the backstop, don't worry about the withdrawal agreement. No, their assumption throughout all of this is that at some point the UK will cave and will sign on the dotted line. And to be clear, we can sign on the dotted line until the moment we have left. That is a possibility. It would then require some sort of extension of Article 50 to allow for ratification. But it's very much the case. And that's what they think will happen. In fact, they actually think that perhaps no deal probably needs to be felt in the air a little more because it's still not tangible to MPs. Theresa May has arguably put her vote to Parliament too early because MPs are still playing domestic politics. They're not really thinking about it in terms of the future of the country and Brexit. They're thinking about it in terms of how can we position ourselves to get to become Prime Minister, if your Labour to trigger a general election. So actually the EU are just going to sit back and wait. They could be wrong about this. They could have miscalculated, but that's what they think will happen. Can I just ask you about the government's economic analysis? You, 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 you questioned it in some ways, but, yeah. but, but, mm. but let's be very clear about what it says, that every option uh, it sets out is worse than, in pure economic terms, over 15 years, than staying 
in the European Union and a no deal scenario leaving without any kind of agreement of any kind is is quite clearly the worst of all yeah and the problem with it is first of all it, it, these the results of these studies depend very fundamentally on your the assumptions that you make and so one of the assumptions they've made is that Europe will not change, that we're looking at a static model here. But are you uh, suggesting that no deal is anything other change. than the worst option economically? It, it depends. There are a lot of different permutations here. One of the things that you will get with a no deal situation, and you'll be forced to do it, is that you will be totally free then to embark on whatever trade policy that you wish to do. You will also be totally free to improve your domestic regulatory environment in ways that improve, enhance competition, enhance consumer welfare and, and actually grow your economy. There are things that you could and do. Which help the poor people in leave voting areas. Yes, absolutely. When you, when you actually grow your economy, you are helping the poorest of, of, no, of, of society. No, that's not true. But you, you, but, you, you basically don't, you don't, accept, you don't accept the, the, the cross-government analysis no, that no, this no, is the worst so, deal so, of all. The other point, you know, so at a high level, it's very difficult to actually make these predictions. When countries have tried to do it, they've notoriously failed and usually underestimated enormously the benefits. So New Zealand, when they estimated the benefits of the New Zealand-China agreement, they underestimated by about 500%. And New Zealand achieved a level of exports to China in 20 months that they were supposed to achieve in 20 years. OK, but, but just I just want to bring Sam in. Because I, mean, I, I think you'd probably accept that the vast majority of econ- economists disagree with the idea that no deal would be a good thing. Well, whether, whether they're right or wrong, it is if a... They're, if, they're based on the fa- if they're based on the... I find the New Zealand example always quite an interesting one because it's true. The, the modellers there did get the projections wrong. But what they were actually modelling was New Zealand removing barriers to trade with the large regional economy. And when you think about that in terms of Brexit, where we're actually putting up barriers to trade with the large regional economy, I just always find it's quite, it's quite a odd example to fall back on. And... But I do agree with Shankar on the issue of is it difficult to model the future when it comes to economics? Of course it is. And it's really difficult to model the impact of trade agreements. But if we just move back a bit from the numbers, we can just sort of think of it, OK, so what's the big economy in the region that we're highly integrated in, within? Are we going to be putting up barriers to trade with them? Yes. Under nearly every scenario of Brexit, the answer is yes. And then the question is, OK, can we make up for those losses via trade agreements with countries that might be big but are much further away or smaller and further away? And the answer is when you, just, when you start to go through this, you just quickly come on, uh, come land upon the conclusion that the answer is no. OK, so this is, a, this is a debate that's going to go on and on, but I do want to move on to a very different option, another referendum, because one of the many strange aspects of Brexit is that although the country voted for it narrowly, the majority of the members of Parliament have always opposed it. And while many MPs feel bound to offer some kind of Brexit to the British people. Others argue that Brexit simply isn't in the national interest, that the referendum was technically advisory and that in the UK it is Parliament that's sovereign. You're, Mary Calder, in favour of a second referendum or another referendum. I, I am because this is how we got there. I mean, in general, I'm against referendums. I believe in parliamentary sovereignty. I think debates have to be properly debated and discussed in Parliament. And I think referendums are a very bad way to make decisions. But given that we've put so much emphasis on this referendum, it seems to me the only way to reverse that decision is through another referendum. What question would you ask? I would probably ask, do you want Theresa May's deal or would you rather have no Brexit? So leaving without leaving the, the EU without Theresa May's deal, that's not an option? I think it's not an option. 
I mean, there's an argument for saying it should be on the ballot so people feel represented. And I think what we really do need to do is to have a very big democratic discussion in this country and in Europe about what we want, because this is what we failed to do. I think it's also very striking that the Electoral Commission found the Leave campaign in violation of the rules. Was Had this been an election, we would have had to rerun it. Because it was only advisory, we don't have to rerun it. And so it seems to me completely mad. I mean, I think all of our political class made a huge mistake. They should have immediately said, this is advisory, we need a debate about what to do before we decide. They didn't do that. They've got us into this mess. Now we have to have the debate now. Of course, Leave might win again. You accept that's a I accept that Leave, that's a possibility, but I think it's actually highly unlikely. What I do think is really important is that I think it was a howl of anguish both about the absence of democracy and the feeling of sense of lack of representation and about the way our manufacturing, our mining has been run down. There's a new economy that, yes, provides jobs, but at very low levels, and a whole class of people have been left out of our society. And no amount of new competitive growth is going to solve the problems for that class of people. So when we argue about Remain... We need to join with other Europeans saying, actually, we need a much more caring Europe. We need a Europe that provides meaningful jobs for people, meaningful education. And it needs to be about much more. It needs to be about the type of society we live in and not just about pro or anti-Europe. Shankar, I mean, we, we treat opinion polls with caution these days. But one thing I think we can say for certain is this country is still deeply divided about Brexit. Sure. Do you think another referendum would solve anything? I'm not sure that it would. I mean, I think I agree that the country is deeply divided. And if anything, I think the polarisation is even greater and the, the positions have sort of hardened. And what I think would be a problem is if we ended up in a situation where we're just constantly having referenda about Europe. I think that the, there was a referendum. The, the people decided to leave. We've got to make it work in some way. And I think there's only one way of making it work, which, which I've outlined. And I think we need to, to actually pursue that. We need to spend our time worrying about that and trying to get that right. Uh, Sam, I mean, one of the the issues facing those who favour another referendum is is that the clock is against them and we would almost certainly have to extend the Article 50 period simply to allow a second referendum to take place. Do do you think it's it's even on the horizon? I mean, the, the, the campaign for it appears to be gathering pace, but have they left it too late? I don't think they've left it too late. I think, as you say, it's it's appearing increasingly possible that this could be something that happens. But in in terms of how, you then leads me to question: How does it happen? And the only route to it happening that I can see is actually for Theresa May to want it to happen. And this is low probability, but of course, as with everything Brexit, you can't rule it out. It's still possible. At the moment, she doesn't. And at the moment, she doesn't. But let's also also remember that the general election wasn't on the table until all of a sudden it was. She's changed her mind in the past because. There's no other route to it happening that I can see. And it is possible, there was a a piece I read, I think, earlier in the Times that laid this on the table, that it could be Theresa May's ultimate trump card, which is either you vote for my deal Mm. to the MPs or I'm putting this back to the people and the question will be this deal or remain. So let's see what happens. Mary, can you see a a clean route to another referendum? And and secondly, if we were to leave, would you, you and others immediately campaign to rejoin the European Union? Are we... Never going to be free of this debate? 
I think Sam is right. That's the most likely way it will happen. I could also see if Labour led the campaign for a second referendum, which would enormously increase its popularity. They could get half a million more members or quarter of a million more members if they today were to say they're going to support a referendum. They have said that they will go for a vote of no confidence. And if that doesn't work, all options are on the table, including a public vote. But I think if Labour led that campaign, that would be a possible other other route. Yes, of course, I would start voting. I would vote for, for, for us. I would campaign with all my heart for us to remain. And it would be a campaign that was not like the old campaign, which is let's keep things as we are. Let's have more competition that was what people were voting against. We want to stay, but we want to really work towards transformation of Europe. There's one other point I hope you don't mind if I say. I think one other option we have not discussed, which seems to be gaining traction, is what's called Norway Plus. A lot of people in Parliament and in the commentariat are saying... This is another, let me just, this is an, another way we could leave, essentially to be like Norway in the single market... But the plus is, is the also customs. in a customs union. And if and you're in the single market in the customs union, why leave in the first place? Exactly. Those are the institutions of the EU. You, you, yeah, exactly. We would be basically a vassal state. But I think that's, that's gaining a lot of traction. And for us you, individually, you know, I'm a researcher. I want to stay part of the European Research Council. I want my students to be able to travel around to universities and do Erasmus. I want to be able to have access to healthcare in other European countries. All that would give me that, but it wouldn't give us a say in the rules. And the other thing I wanted to move on to, to have a little look at Britain's place in the world, really, because obviously it's not just about trade. It is about Brexit. It is about internal security cooperation. It's about foreign policy. It's about defence. And of course, one of the big things in the referendum campaign was immigration and, and the place of the free movement of people from the European Union, which would have to continue under under the Norway plus scenario. I, ironically, of course, if you want to reach out to other countries around the world, you need to encourage yeah, immigration. Yeah. If you go to India and say, let's have a free trade deal, the first thing they're going to say is, how many visas are you going to give us for Indian students? So uh, is there has there been an honest debate about the place of immigration in Brexit, Shankar Singham? No, I, I, I don't think there has been. And I think actually, if you, if you have a, and you know, this is all my own personal view, um, it, it is pretty important in this process for this to be a successful process for the UK in order to maximise the benefits of an independent trade and regulatory policy. We are going to have to have a sensible immigration policy on a non-discriminatory basis, but we're going to have a, uh, an immigration. We're going to need an immigration policy that's based on need, not on numbers. But many of the um, politicians you have been close to over the last couple of years campaigned under the slogan take back control let's stop let let's take well back control i think you can, you can you can take a, you absolutely you can take back control of your borders you can take back control of your immigration policy and still have a sensible immigration policy i just wouldn't be as optimistic as shankar is i'm, I'm not sure if it's optimism or just expressing what you hope. What, what, hope, yes. <laughs> yes because because i see it as path dependent and a vote against freedom of movement which for some people it was not everyone who voted brexit voted for that but for some it was clear and the fact that the prime minister has internalized that if you think mm. about her red lines her the one let red line really left standing mm. is freedom of movement does not suggest to me that we are at least in the short to medium term future going to be a country that opens our doors to the rest of the world. And as you said, you know, if we want to have a effective trade policy that reaches out beyond our shores and we're actually a services economy where the movement of people is even more important, 
then that's who we're going to need to be. Mm-hmm. And actually, my feeling is going back to the debate we're having at the beginning of the show, that rather than a customs union being the biggest constraint on an effective British free tra- uh, trade policy, it's actually going to be the Home Office. OK, well, we're coming towards the end of the programme. Just one last question I want to ask e- each of you, uh, just focusing back on the internal dynamics in the UK. Brexit seems to have become our culture war in the way that hmm. gun rights or abortion hmm. are culture hmm. war issues in the United States. Can any of you see any way that, that this culture war, that this division gets healed over the next six months, whatever the outcome? I'm going to go around the table, just brief answer each. Samlo. Uh, No, I don't think so. I think Brexit is something that goes on for a lifetime. We negotiate our exit, fine. We negotiate a future relationship, fine. It gets renegotiated. Different political groups have emerged over time. We see the big Remain lobby. That never existed before. So I think it just remains polarised. Mary? I think if we leave, it's going to be incredibly polarised. People go on about how upset the Brexiteers will be if we stay in. But if we leave, their situation is going to be much worse and the Remainers are going to be incredibly frustrated and there'll be a blame game. I think it's very likely that Britain will break up, Scotland will go independent, Ireland will either become united or return to war. So it's going to be very bad. If we remain, I think what we really have to do is to make alliances with with people across Europe at a citizen's level uh, in order to transform the European Union and transform people's lives back in Britain. And briefly, please, Shane. Yeah, I mean, I think it's obviously a seismic shift in, in, in UK politics and, and, and so forth, and I think that will remain the case for some time to come. But I do think that if we actually... One of the problems is that we haven't actually started the negotiation of our future economic partnership with the with the EU. And I think once you start to do that, and once you start to have um, a more um, fruitful discussion, a more fruitful debate, this has been a very fractious debate with the EU. The withdrawal is always going to be more fractious because it's about money, it's about separating, it's all of those things. But once you start to negotiate the future framework and the future relationship where we have a lot of things in common, and we start to also negotiate with other parties and we, we start to see the benefits of this, then I think, um, absolutely, I think the country can come together. But, but I think it will only come together around a sort of open um, Brexit that is uh, Britain opening up. And I think if, if we closed up in th- things like immigration and other things, then I think that would be a very bad um, uh, moment going forward. Well, so many issues still to discuss in the months, weeks, months and years to come. But that's it for this week on The Real Story. Thanks to our guests, Sam Lowe, Mary Calder and Shanka Singham. If you'd like to listen to the programme again or any other from the archive, you can listen back online by searching for BBC The Real Story. And if you like this week's programme, make sure you never miss another edition and subscribe to our podcast. You can find us simply by searching for The Real Story in your podcast app. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the programme. You can email us at therealstory at bbc.co.uk. From me, Chris Morris and the team, that is The Real Story for this week. Thanks for listening.